Daniel Henderson is in the new elder candidacy process here at Solid Rock, and he has passed the three-month interview phase and is moving into the nine-month phase where he will uh, meet with the elders as a non-decision-making elder, and uh, so uh, enjoyed uh, the interview process and excited about what God is doing in his life and life of his family. So if you, uh, if you didn't know that, uh, be sure to congratulate him and let him know you're praying for him. We're going to be in um, 1 Corinthians uh, 8 and 9 today, and, uh, and so I invite you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you uh, are a note taker, we've began providing notes again for you. These uh, will hopefully be helpful for you to follow along and to, to write down things that God speaks to you, but also a helpful tool to carry into life group meetings or other settings where you want to remember some of the things that were talked about, and then the backside has a place for you to write down personal reflections uh, if a guy speaks something specifically to you or challenges you in a certain way, just feel free to write that down as well. Those are for you. Uh, we're going to be in uh, chapter 8 and 9 of Corinthians together. And, and really, I read these two chapters together as one chapter. Um, if, if you're not familiar with how the Bible was put together, it didn't originally have chapters and verses. It wasn't until uh, the early 13th century that the Archbishop of Canterbury put in chapter breaks so that references could be made because these letters and these books are so long. And then it wasn't until the 16th century until verses were added in, and they're not always put in the perfect spot. Uh, and so I would say 8 and 9 is an example of a place where really train of thought hasn't broken. And to fully understand 9, you have to start in 8 to fully get what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to the church. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to move through chapter 8 into chapter 9. Um, as we move through the Letters of the Church series, we're reading these letters written to the churches of the New Testament as though God is writing and speaking them to us that we might learn and grow and be challenged as a church. And so today, uh, we're going to be looking at this call of sweet surrender uh, that the gospel calls us to. And the idea of surrender isn't a popular concept among human beings in general, but certainly not among proud, patriotic Americans who know no surrender. Um, I don't know if you've caught on or not, uh, but our, our current generation is a very entitled generation. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's probably, uh, probably, I would say, uh, the most epidemic it's ever been in American culture, this sense of entitlement. Uh, I, I blame it on the baby boomers, uh, those who were born in the 50s and 60s who went through the civil rights movement, a very healthy movement for our country, but then the, pend the pendulum swung, everybody had a right to everything. And the, the, the issue that we have as Christians is that the gospel calls us to surrender our rights. And so chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul's going to walk us through this in uh, three specific examples. So we're going to start in 8 and work through it. And then we get to chapter 9. There will be some places uh, for you to fill in blanks if you're taking notes. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul is going to be talking about an issue. And so let me just give the background. So you're dealing with um, Christians uh, living amidst a pagan culture, not anything new. Uh, however, one of the things that was indicative of the pagan culture was their feasts and their celebrations and their worship services uh, included big meals and food offered to idols. You're going to read that a lot in Paul's writings. And so what would happen is they would worship and they would have these big meals. And as they ingested the food, their belief, the belief of, the, of those who weren't Christians, is that somehow they were even ingesting something spiritual as they, as they uh, sacrificed this food unto the gods. Well, as the Christians were uh, growing in their knowledge of Christ and realizing that there is only one true God, they were beginning to realize that 
it was just food. Like you can offer the chicken to the God of whoever, but at the end of the day, it's still just a chicken. And so in their knowledge of what is true, they were actually beginning to become arrogant and saying, yeah, we'll eat your food. We'll take this as good food. Wow, this is really good, this food offered to the gods. And, and Paul is going to say, listen, you're right in that aspect, that it's just, just chicken, right? It's just food. However, we need to think about the impact that that is having on those who don't know what you know, those who maybe are weaker or don't know Christ. And so that's the background as we move into chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food... Offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So he's addressing that. This knowledge, though, puffs up, but love builds up. So the issue with our knowledge as we grow in our knowledge of Christ for this church is that they were going in arrogance. They were being puffed up instead of built up. If anyone, verse 2, imagines that he knows something... He does not yet know as he ought to know. So you might know a truth, but you don't know it as you ought to know the truth. There's a way to know truth. There's a way to know truth in humility. In Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, we're to share the truth with one another in love. There's a way, a context for sharing what is true. So it's not just enough to have truth and go swinging it around like a baseball bat at people. There's a way. There's a way to deliver truth. So they were growing in knowledge, but they didn't know how to use the knowledge they had. Verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so a contrast here between being puffed up with knowledge and, in in essence, just being known by God. Paul's going to say, what's more important? Like, How can you be arrogant when you realize that God, the one true God, knows you? You are known by God. And that is more important than how much you think you know. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. He's going to address that now. We know that an idol has no real existence. We know that. And that there is no God but one. So that's what we know as Christians. Verse 3, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, referring to the culture they lived in, Verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. Paul's addressing it. We know this. Our knowledge of Christ informs us that any other God is really just wishful thinking. There is one true God. We know this. Verse 7 begins with a however. However, not all possess this knowledge. Now, he could be referring to young Christians or more than likely at least non-believers, but even maybe young Christians. Not everybody is at where you're at with knowledge. So you have to think about your actions. You have to think about the choices you're making with the knowledge that you have and what impact it's having on other people. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So he's going to go on and say, the food isn't what defiles the person, it's this conscious awareness, it's what they believe that defiles them. Some believe that the chicken is no longer just chicken, it's now chicken is Zeus. And so it's not, as they ingest it, changing, right, it's not 
changing the DNA of their body, but in their minds, their consciences are giving over to Zeus. And so it's having an effect on people. And it's as if it is really offered. Verse 8. Now, food will not commend us to God, right? We know that. We have that knowledge. Food isn't going to commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, right? The food doesn't change your spiritual relationship to God. Verse 9. But take care. But take care, or but pay attention to yourself, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak or weak to eat food offered to idols? It could have an impact. Verse 12, thus, the brother for whom Christ died, thus, I'm sorry, let me back up. In verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That's a pretty, pretty stiff challenge there. Verse 12, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Is eating the chicken sin? No. Is the impact that it has on the potential Christian sin? Yes. Because you have the knowledge. Because you're aware that what you're doing is possibly encouraging them, leading them astray. Verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, we're going to move on from here to two other issues. One is... Uh, Paul's right as a minister to be compensated and Paul's right as a minister to be married. He's, but first, he's talking about his right to eat. Now, uh, here and then also in Romans 14, uh, Paul makes the same point to the church that our primary concern should be not causing our brother to stumble. And so these verses get applied oftentimes in the modern context to alcohol, and, and rightly so, that there be a consciousness about it. So we pulled into that conversation where we, as Christ followers, may have the knowledge of what is true, that the Bible doesn't forbid drinking alcohol, right? But then that can very easily become a license with no concern for who it affects. So there's maybe a cultural equivalent to what's happening here. And so Paul's saying, you have the right to eat. You have the knowledge that informs you that says it's still just chicken, but because you love your brother, if eating the chicken causes your brother to go astray, then you will say, I just won't eat chicken. If it's just today during this one meal or if it's the rest of my life, Paul is saying, I am willing to abstain from anything that might obstruct or become an obstacle to the gospel. And that's chapter 8 leading us then into chapter 9. Starting at verse 1. Paul begins with this conclusion. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? We're free. This food doesn't condemn us. It doesn't make us not saved. We're free. We're set free. Are you not my worksmanship in the Lord? Verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And so Paul is going to make this case. I led you to Christ, and, and I have the right, just like you have the right, I have the freedom, I have the knowledge that this food isn't going to change my spiritual plane or my spiritual 
presence with the Lord. It's not going to change anything. I have this knowledge with you. You know it. I led you to Christ. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? It's a rhetorical question. Yes. Matter of fact, in 1 Timothy again, uh, in chapter 4, Paul's going to address this again. Anything that's received with thanksgiving to the Lord is clean, right? It's not this matter of whether or not it was presented in some temple. That doesn't change it. It's still just food. Why? Because the gods aren't real. Still just food and drink. We have the right. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Uh Uh-oh, he just brought up another issue. While we're on the topic, those of you who've maybe made the case that I don't have the right to take a wife, you're wrong. I do have the right to take a wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So let's just address that issue. Now, as he'll address later in 1 Corinthians 7, it might be better to not to abstain from being married for the sake of the gospel and ministry and what God's called him to, right? But, but I have the right to be married. It makes me wonder if, uh, if, if, if there uh, was something else going on here in the congregation between Paul and like maybe the idea of maybe some girl liked Paul. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he's addressing the issue. It came up. He's saying, I'm not, not married because I don't have the right to be. And then he makes another case here. Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living, bringing up compensation? So, so this is why we started in 8. If you just read 9, it's going to sound like Paul's building the case that he needs to get paid, but he's not going to push that right on people. It's kind of a broader context of conversation saying, let me just mention some of the rights I have. I can eat or drink anything. I have the right to that as, as a Christ follower. I've been set free. Clear conscience. I have the right to take a, a wife, a believing wife. Not an unbeliever, but a believing wife. I have the right to be compensated for my ministry to you. These are all my rights. However, that's not his primary point. He's making a primary point in the broader context. Verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I have a right. We're going to to skip down to verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, this is where I believe Paul's primary heartbeat is coming out of this text. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Just because we have the right doesn't mean it's good to use it. I've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You feel the angst there? Paul probably could have kept just rattling off issues, rights, things that they had a right to. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the community of Christ, clearly, and we're going to see this especially in the next few months as we finish up 1 and 2 Corinthians. The community of Christ is distinguished from other communities by a willingness to lay down personal rights for the sake of the gospel. Most organizations and institutions are building up and standing up for what is right, 
okay? Not questioning those motives, but whether, regardless of the organization, there's a standing up for rights. In Christ, we're called as the community to lay down our personal rights for the sake of others and specifically the gospel. Later on in in, uh, in the letter, Paul's going to address this again, but this helps us understand the last verse of chapter 8 when Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. There's that heartbeat coming out. That's my point I'm making here. The gospel should matter to you. Your brother should matter to you. This shouldn't be a squabbling over, a quarreling over which God this food was offered to. It should be a matter of loving others more than you love yourself. That's the issue I have here. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself. So going back to this, I am free. For though I am free from all, all obligations, Right, All sense of the law, although I am free from it, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. This is where that famous verse comes out, all things to all people, chapter, verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. So when Paul was amongst the Jews, right, he practiced and he ate with them what they ate and he, he got involved in their culture. Didn't mean he denied the one true God or moved away from what he believed in faith, but culturally speaking, he became like the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Then, a side note, though not being myself under the law, it didn't make me under the law. I just participated that way. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Again, not not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become, here it comes, all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now that verse gets hijacked out of context oftentimes in our current culture, justifying watering down or modifying the gospel to make it more palatable and more attractive. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. He's talking about practices, and he's talking about food and being married and, and all those sorts of things. And Paul is saying, here's the thing. I live my life under obligation to the gospel, and that informs me on when I eat, what I eat, whether I get married, whether I don't get married, how I act around people. The gospel alone, if you remember chapter 1 of this letter, the gospel alone is offensive Right? I don't have to try to make it offensive and go out of my way. But whatever cultural context I'm in, I live in that cultural context with respect for the culture. And I eat with them and I drink with them and I, I participate in life as they live it. That when we get to theology, when we get to the discussion about what is true, I haven't put any obstacles in the way because the gospel itself is an obstacle. The gospel should matter that much to us. All things to all people is a call to, I'm going to use a word that I'm going to explain it, incarnate, if you're taking notes, 
into someone else's life by laying down your personal rights and preferences among multiple cultures and demographical groups for the sake of the gospel. Incarnate. Now, where did we get that example from? Jesus himself became all things to all people. And did he lay down rights to do so? Yeah. No one has ever laid down more rights than God in heaven by incarnating into our world and putting on our skin and taking our abuse. Did he not have the right to be treated differently, to be spoken to differently, to be hailed as a king? Yeah, he had the right, but he laid it down. For what reason? That he might endure death, even the death of a Roman cross on our behalf. The mission mattered to him. So he incarnated into our world. And this is what I believe Paul is calling us to, to take the example of Jesus, to incarnate into a person's life and world. If you're going to lunch with somebody and they say, you know what, I just don't like Mexican food. Okay, like let them pick. And if they pick something you don't like, go with it for the sake of the gospel. There's some real life application there. Real life application. Whatever the person's personal preferences are, you lay it down to exhibit Christ to them that the gospel might be presented. Don't eat if it's that big of a deal, right? Well, I'm allergic to noodles, and we're going to a noodle place. Okay, just then be willing to not eat is Paul's point because the gospel matters. That's not what I'm hungry for. Okay. How about your appetite to see people come to Christ? Speak louder than your appetite for noodles or not noodles. Verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, that's an interesting phrase because it's not just about them. Paul is even talking about his own blessings here that somehow in laying down his rights, he finds his blessings So blessings aren't something we have to demand. They're something we find in the midst of surrender. Again, if you're taking notes, personal rights can become a barrier between you and other people very quickly. It's why cliques form. It's why people gravitate towards affinity groups. It's why birds of a feather flock together. We like to be around people who like the things we like. It's uncomfortable to be around people who don't like things we don't like. People ask, you know, in, in, in life groups, why don't we just match people up perfectly with all the same hobbies and all the same interests and all the same things? And that's comfortable, right? But as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. In our discomfort, in the places we rub up against each other, those are the places that we stand the most room to actually grow. And what happens over time? We gravitate that way anyway. Now, We'll finish here on on the notes. Personal rights can become a barrier between you and also God's blessings. So it's it's, it's about them, but but even for you, there's something in it in laying down your rights. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Laying down your rights is about removing barriers in order to share with others what you have and receive receive from God what he has for you. Now think about this from a parent's perspective. When our kids come to us and demand what is rightfully theirs, 
I hope you don't respond. We don't, I try not to. We don't respond in our house to that. But he got ice cream. Where's mine? You still have to ask. And even then, I'll make a decision. Right? We don't demand what is rightfully ours in our house because at the end of the day, I paid for that ice cream. It's my ice cream. I'm just letting you have it or not letting you have it. Right? And so if we, we, we understand this, God, our Father, then... Right, we're, we're getting this example from him. We don't demand what is ours. We don't come to him and demand our blessings. But in laying down our rights is where we truly find our blessings. I love that little phrase there. I lay down my rights for the sake of the gospel, and in laying down my rights is where I find my blessing. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run? So he's going to use this athletic running metaphor now. But only one receives the prize. So now he's still thinking about prize and blessing and what's to be received. And he's going to use this athletic metaphor. So only one, one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So he's going to say, while we're on the topic of blessings, let's spend a moment there. The Christian life, like running a race, has a prize at the end that we're after. However, just like in running, if you leave the starting blocks, and he's thinking more of like a marathon, long-distance run, and you just go after it, ready to obtain it, and that's all you want, that's all you're thinking about, and you're demanding, I want the prize, right? You have to exercise what? Self-control. And Christ, there is a blessing to be had at the end. But while you're here on earth, you're running a race, and it's, you're to exercise self-control, not getting tripped up and caught up in the perishable blessings of this life, but holding off, understanding my reward is coming, and not trading the knockoffs of this world for what is eternal that you shall receive in the end, exercising self-control. So really, my laying down of my rights is an exercising of self-control. In those moments where I have to say, you know what, I'm going to deny myself for the sake of somebody else, whether it's a food or it's a, a parking spot. Um, this is always challenging to me. I used to be better at this than I am now. Like, when you make a choice to park, you make several choices. One, you make a choice to park around the cars that you're parked around. If something happens, it's their fault, but you chose to park there too. But you're also making a more significant choice. You're saying, this is the spot I deserve. Now think about that, Christ follower, when you park. Now, if you are a handicapped person or an elderly person, I want you to park up close. The rest of us going after that front spot. Now, maybe there's an emergency. Maybe, well, I don't know. But in reality, what we're saying is, I deserve this spot more than anybody who's going to come after me until I leave it. And we're assuming that nobody's going to come in greater need who may be handicapped or elderly or physical or, 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 or let's just assume they don't have needs. We're saying, I deserve this spot more than anybody else. There's just an example now of how we exert our right. I have the right. I got here first. I saw it. I saw that reverse lights from across the parking lot, and I got here first. I deserve it. Okay, again, application, saying, you know what? Wouldn't hurt me to walk a little extra further. Nobody will ever know, right? God knows, but nobody will ever know 
that I gave up that spot. It's not the point. It's an attitude of life, a willingness to surrender, understanding that the blessings to be had aren't found in front row parking at Walmart, eating where you want to eat, right? The blessing that is for you, Christ's follower, is the reward at the end of the race. Exercise self-control. That one's always fun. Here's my solution. I take my wife with me and I just drop her off at the front. See, I get to bless her. She gets to walk in. And then I drive out to the back and keep my eye on the front door. And then neither one of us, right? So we both close. And then I go pick her up. And um, I don't know where she parks when I'm not around. Out, way out, right? Now, again, later on in the letter, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is going to make a really, really valid point. So in verse 23 of chapter 10, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are what? Helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up, or some translations say beneficial. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He's making the same point here. You, if you get to Walmart, and that I'm talking the front row by the door spot is open. You have a legal right to that spot, unless it's marked handicapped, and you're not handicapped, but you follow me, right? Legally, you have a right to that. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be most beneficial, though. Now, take that into other arenas of life. Just because it's legal, just because it's permissible, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Laying down your rights is about self-control as you walk through this life, refraining from indulging in everything that is permissible. So you mean I, get to, I never get to eat anything I want to eat? It's Father's Day. Go somewhere you want to eat today. Yes, you get to eat. It's just moving us to think a little bit more deeper about the impact of the things that we do. Seeing that our choices impact other people. And there are times when you're going out to eat, it doesn't matter where you eat. It just doesn't matter to you or the people you're with. Just go eat somewhere. But at least be willing. If your spouse or the company you're with, maybe an unbeliever you're meeting for lunch, just be willing to lay down in the most simplest way your rights that you might display Christ. All right. Verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. And he's going to use another illustration to describe what it looks like to um, run aimlessly. It's shadow boxing. Most of the guys know what shadow boxing is. So here's what he's going to say. I do not box as one beating the air. Right? It can be good exercise. It can get you warmed up. But it's not doing anything. Right? It has no impact. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So pulling that now into this shadow boxing illustration, you can preach what you, the gospel to people, but if you are exerting and demanding your rights at the same time, it could very much be like shadow boxing. You see how critical this is to the gospel message? Now, does 
Letting other people park at Walmart save anybody? No. But Paul is saying to display this genuine love that Christ has for them, be willing to lay yourself down, all your rights down, so that when you preach the gospel, it might have the, the right impact. Otherwise, you might simply just be boxing the air, walking or running aimlessly through the earth. I want to end our, our time in chapter 8 and 9 today with some questions for you to think about. Okay? This would be a good place if God speaks to you or has spoken to you, maybe even on the backside. Just jot some of those things down. As you get ready to think about how this applies to your life, I, I want to bring up one of Jesus' parables. It was a one-verse parable in Matthew 13. It's a brilliant um, parable about the kingdom of God. And he compares the kingdom of God to a treasure. He says, the kingdom is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, he buries it, goes home and sells everything he has to do what? Come back and buy the field. Now in that simple parable, Jesus is illustrating this. A giving up and a laying down of the rights that we have here on earth to attain the kingdom. What did he say to the wealthy young ruler who came to him? He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life and get into the kingdom? And Jesus talked about the Ten Commandments. And the guy said, I am upright and moral. One thing you lack. What is that? Lay down your rights. Go home and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. You see, this call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die, not a call to come and demand rights. It's a call to lay yourself down as our Savior laid himself down, right, for something better for a better treasure. That's the point of the parable. These things at home were good and right, and I worked hard for them. But what I found in the gospel is worth more. And if I need to lay these things down for the sake of others, I will. Then now go, after this, go read Acts 2 and Acts 4. You're gonna see these Christ followers laying down everything. They're selling their stuff to take care of each other's needs. What do you need? You know what, I don't have that much money. But you know what I do have? I have two lawnmowers. I don't need the other one. I'm gonna go sell it. Here you go. Why? You don't have the right to that? Sure, you worked hard for it. But I'm going to lay myself down for you. Here's some questions. Which word would better describe your overall attitude in life? I'm not asking your spouse, so I don't want to see any elbows. For you just to think about. Which word better describes your attitude in life? Surrendered? Or entitled. Think about that. Surrendered or entitled. Have there been some ways in your life, uh, maybe at work or in family situations or in other relationship situations, that God has challenged you to become all things to all people? You've been challenged by that recently? And maybe this is a follow up question. Are you willing? to lay down your personal rights for the sake of sharing the gospel with others? Are you willing to adapt your personal preferences for the sake of the gospel? This is what Paul has said so far. Chapter 8, 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. 
Chapter 9, 19, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Chapter 9, 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Are you willing to lay down your personal preferences for the sake of others? Or are you shadow boxing? Spinning your wheels, running aimlessly. Maybe... uh, it's Father's Day, so let's just bring it to a, to a kind of a challenge for us dads. Um, I believe something is true, whether it's the church or the home. Leaders release the DNA, okay? And what I mean by that is um, dads, as you leave your, lead your homes towards Christ, you don't necessarily see immediate change, but your attitude and your, the way you carry yourself and the way you issue discipline and the way you, whatever becomes is important to you in the end will overall become important to your family. Same thing is true here in the church. You release the DNA, okay? So I'm not talking about light switch immediate change. I'm talking about long term, what does it look like? There isn't a higher calling for a man than the calling you have to your family, I'm so proud of you and your career. Good job. So proud of you and your ambitions, whatever they are. The primary calling you have is to your family, men, your wife and your children. You are called to selflessly lead your wife and your children to Jesus. What does the DNA of your family look like? Think about it this way. Which word better describes your family? Entitled? Surrendered. Puffed up? Humble. That's pretty challenging, right? But ultimately, you, re- you release the DNA. Do your wife and children, do they lay down their rights for the sake of others? If so, is this something that they're doing because they're following your example? Or, just one more challenge, is this something you're leaving up to your wife to do? You know what? Moms are really good at this. By necessity from the beginning of motherhood, laying themselves down for the sake of someone else, right? I mean, from conception, especially those of you who had rough right, pregnancies, throwing up and all that stuff that you endure. Like from the beginning, moms inherently are good at laying themselves down. Dads, not their responsibility, though, to teach the family to do so. And so there's the challenge. So maybe you are seeing humility and seeing your kids grow up to know and love Jesus, but the challenge is, are you letting your wife lead out in that? Or dads, is that something that they're seeing in you? Now I'm going to take some time to pray for us and let you, if you have some personal reflections, write those down. And our worship team's going to come back up. Um, our prayer partners are going to be down, as I mentioned earlier. And um, I can't emphasize enough the need to, when God speaks to you uh, and shows you something clearly, to, to reciprocate that and speak back to him. Okay? And you can do that where you're seated. Um, our prayer partners would love to pray with you and pray over you. Um, if there's something that is going on that you want to talk about, they would love to talk with you. I want to say this, though. The most important thing you could hear from today's sermon and from my mouth as you hear this challenge to lay down our rights is this. 
The reason we willingly lay down our rights is because we found something of infinitely more value. That's the treasure. And if you haven't found this treasure in Christ, that's the invitation extended to you today, to come and find the treasure, to come and find the well of living water that is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never given your life to Christ, trusted him, today is your day. You can do that where you're seated. You could come down, and our prayer partners are ready to, to talk with you and pray with you about making that decision. In the next service, we're going to have a baptism, and really, baptism does nothing to change a person. It's just an outward expression of an inward decision to trust Christ and to follow him and to lay yourself down. That invitation is extended to you today. The Bible clearly says that if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I'm going to pray for us, and if that's you, I hope you'll make that decision today as our worship team comes back down and our prayer partners come forward. Let's pray together. God, it seems so fitting to call you Father, especially on Father's Day. I know as a dad, I am so thankful for the example I have in you. But even more than that, God, I'm thankful that when I don't get it right, you are a father of mercy and grace. Thank you, God, for blanketing your people with mercy and grace. Today, I want to pray for those who've been challenged, that today would be less of a challenge to lay things down and more of a challenge to take up the treasure we have in the gospel, to see that what we have in you is infinitely more valuable than anything else we have here on earth. 